Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall, and this is a special episode recorded on location at the Craft Malt Conference that was recently held in Portland, Maine. I'm going to be joined by a trio of brewers who discuss their use or not of craft malt in their beers. And we'll get into it in a moment. But first, please visit allaboutbeer.com. There, you can find original articles, reviews, news, insights, and podcasts. You can listen to shows like Beer Travelers, Brewer to Brewer, and the All About Beer podcast simply by searching All About Beer wherever you listen to shows. This show and all the work we do is supported by you. You can visit patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to help keep the content fresh. And a reminder that a few bucks goes a long way to fund writers, photographers, creators, and editors. And if you'd like to learn more about advertising on this show, please email info at allaboutbeer.com. And if you're a smoked beer fan, and of course you are, go check out This Week in Rauk Beer. Search the Facebook group or follow on Instagram and Twitter at TWRaukBeer. And of course, don't forget Camp Rauk Beer coming up at Barique Brewing and Blending on May 9th, 2023, starting at about five o'clock. It's going to be some of the best Rauk Beer brewers from around the country, all pouring their smoky delights. Is Craft Lager having a moment? It certainly gained popularity on taproom menus around the country, and it's showing us the diversity of styles and flavors that can be enjoyed in this category. But where does craft malt fit into these styles that are so driven by the flavors and functionality of malt? This panel that you're about to hear brings together three brewers from the Northeast to discuss their lager programs and how, when, and why they choose to use or not use craft malts in the development of their beer recipes. I'll do a full introduction on the tape, but you'll hear from Sean Towers from The Seed, a living beer project, Michael Fava of Sacred Profane Brewery, and Justin Slotnick of Schilling Beer Company. And during the question and answer portion at the end of the show, we're going to get some great insight from Daniel Carey of New Glarus Brewing. Here's our panel discussion. And one of the cool things about covering beer is that it's not just the liquid itself. But covering beer is a story of architecture. It's a story of art. And it is very much a story of agriculture. And so being here today to, to talk about craft malt and how it's being used in beer, uh, I'm really excited. Um, the idea behind this uh, originally was to spark a conversation about mash bills for craft lager and having three brewers who come from different perspectives on the panel. Uh, the always uses craft malt. The sometimes uses craft malt. And because every good story needs a villain, the brewery that never uses craft malt, Mike Fava. Just, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a redemption story. You're going you're gonna to go from villain to hero all throughout. So let me introduce our, <laughs> let me introduce our panel. Uh, Sean Towers is the co-founder, owner, and operations lead of The Seed, a living beer project in Atlantic City, New Jersey. He's operated breweries at various scales in New Jersey over the last 10 years while simultaneously managing a university-based bivalve shellfish aquaculture research lab. With a background in microbiology and marine biology through his decade-plus of brewery aquaculture and environmental experience, Sean has continued to expand upon a lifelong reverence for the natural world. Both his current brewery and aquaculture work allow him to explore his passions for local ingredients, the growers behind such ingredients, embracing seasonality and preservation. Justin Slotnick got his start as a home brewer in 2006 while a student at George Washington University. After moving back to his home state of Massachusetts, he began volunteering at Trillium Brewing, helping with everything from cleaning out the building to brewing pilot batches. When Trillium opened a year later in 2013, he was employee number three, primarily responsible for seller work and retail sales. In 2016, he traveled to South Carolina to help build out the Charlestown Fermentary and spent four years as assistant brewer, retail manager, and trivia host. Yes, every week. Wow. Every week. <laughs> All right. So we're going to end this. You're going to throw out a couple of questions at the end. No. Okay. <laughs> thought you guys were fun. All right. This is why you come to rehearsal. Uh, looking to move back to New England and jump headfirst into the world of brewing, he took the job of production manager brewer at Schilling Beer Company in Littleton, New Hampshire in January 2021. And that's where he lives with his partner, Julie, and their dog, Hazelnut. 
Michael Fava is the Director of Operations at Sacred Profane. He has operated breweries in Philadelphia and Maine for the last 15 years. He is, highly, he is a highly respected member of the global beer community, specializing in lagers, farmhouse ales, mixed, you wrote this, uh, <laughs> lagers, farmhouse ales, mixed fermentation, and barrel aging. His background is in engineering and business and has led to multiple, multiple brewery commissions and designing custom brewing equipment. He has a passion for sustainability, agriculture, and a particular affection for historic and traditional techniques. He is also a father as of a month ago, a brand new father as of a month ago. So trivia, dad jokes, and Sean, we're going to find your hidden talent in, uh, in, in, in a few minutes. But Sean, let, let's start with you because we're, we're here to unlock Lagers Mystique with specialty and craft malts. And lagers in the craft space, um, while maybe not so new, have gained a lot more interest as of late. Um, uh, Ashley Carter of Beerstadt Lager House in Denver likes to say uh, that lagers on a 500-year winning streak, so she doesn't understand why everybody's starting to talk about it now. Um, but where do you come from when, it's, when thinking about specialty malts and your brewery, um, and in particular, the lagers that you're making? So where we come from with the lagers that we're making is actually not lager derived at all. Our brewery was really founded on like a philosophy and ethos of Saison. So my partner, Amanda and myself have been brewing for a little over a decade at this point, uh, all in New Jersey for a couple of other breweries running a variety of programs and really just fell in love with mixed culture beer and the story and the kind of like beauty behind all of that. So we went off on our own to open our own project focused on Saison. And for us, that really meant local ingredients brewing with the seasons and kind of letting nature take its course and somewhat minimal intervention. Uh, somewhere along that line, we fell into the rabbit hole of lager, which for us was, I think, a little more um, culture derived. We found that Everything we wanted to be doing around this ethos of Cezanne also really wrapped in a lot of old world European beer culture, which is a big thing that I think has been missing from the American beer scene for a while. And uh, the lager culture in particular for us really just has drawn us in for a very long time. We just didn't think we'd be so focused on making them. Um, if you ever come to our brewery, it's not set up to make lager at all. Um, but with all that in mind, we make a ridiculous amount of lager for what we were planning at this point. And we really just try to stream that thread of local ingredients and seasonality into that lager program as best possible. So for us, lager is like a really clean slate for us to challenge ourselves from a process and a brewing standpoint. And also, uh, since she's front and center here, to give Hillary's Rabbit Hill Mall a little bit of a showcase at the brewery as well without the microbes taking over as much. So that's kind of the, the blanket brushstroke answer to our, our lager journey right now. Mike, can we talk about your lager journey? Because you have a lager-centric brewery. Like you're not allowing ales to show up at your brewery. No ales. Uh, no <laughs> Uh, and, and Sean just sort of talked about some of the, the history and tradition of which I, I, I've come to understand your brewery uh, is deeply, deeply focused on. Very much so. Yeah, we, um, we set out with the ideal. We wanted to set up a lager brewery, the state of Maine. Although they have, uh, there's over 175 breweries, there's not one brewery dedicated to lager production. So starting with the ideal, and uh, if you know my, my wife, Brianne Allen, she's a, a career brewer as well. Uh, specializing in lager production, same with me. Uh, we're both very passionate about about lagers, particularly Czech lagers. And we wanted to start with the ideal. We make two beers, um, pale lager and dark lager, doing them as traditionally as possible. Uh, meaning we did set up a, a decoction brew house. We were able to design all of our equipment between the two of us, which was really an amazing process. And, uh, and using the raw ingredients that are going to make that authentic and going down that rabbit hole on what that means to, to the, the country of Czech Republic is something I'm hoping to unpack a little bit today because, uh, you know, that story is really awesome and, and why Sacred Profane has, has opened and why we're doing what we're doing. Um, yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely go down that, that rabbit hole. But Justin, um, from your brewery, <clears throat> excuse me, from your brewery perspective, what does lager mean? Where does lager fit into what you're doing uh, these days? Sure. So uh, Schilling's been open now for about 10 years over in Littleton, New Hampshire, which is about uh, two and a half, two hours and 45 minutes from here in the White Mountains. Um, the owners uh, had spent a lot of time in Europe 
they set out to uh, to brew lagers in in the states. Um, they were maybe a little uh, overly optimistic with what they could do uh, when they opened up in a 1790s grist mill uh, and decided to put the brewing operations basically behind the bar slash kitchen in whatever little space they had uh, with some tanks down in the basement. Um, but you know, being kind of ahead of it 10 years ago has really helped Schilling kind of be, um, ready to just to dive headfirst into some more, uh, historical styles, uh, of lager brewing, um, really go deep, uh, into, um, ingredient choices and, uh, and like I said, styles, um, and really just, just hone in and focus on that. Um, and the, kind of the revival of interest in lagers because, yeah, I mean, they've been around forever. We're not finding something new. Um, but the interest in the craft, uh, craft brewery consumer, uh, you know, that has gone through the roof lately, which has been great for, for us and, um, for probably all of us up here and, and, and a lot of other brewers in the, um, I don't know how many other brewers are in the room, but, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been a good boon. Um, so for shilling, it's like, uh, lager production is 80% of our production. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that we really, I mean, every beer we want to make good, but we, uh, we hang our hat on, on the, on the lager production and, um, and really take our pride in that. What, Sean, when it comes to, I, I find it interesting that you're saying that there's not much new to, to discover because I, I, in talking with maltsters and talking with brewers that are using craft malt, there is some excitement of, you know, some new varietals that have come up or, um, uh, you know, different ways that things are being malted. Um, um, or just working with farmers to say, okay, you know, how, like, how can we do something different? Uh, how can we do something to make these beers stand out? Um, Sean, when you're having the conversation with Hillary um, uh, about what, you know, what, what she's growing and what you want to make, what do those conversations look like or sound like? Uh, a lot of times they're less so conversation and more so Hillary and team are stoked on some grain that they're growing and send some bags down and we work with it. Um, but yeah, we we work very closely with Hillary and the whole team up there for um, you know not not just new grain varietals, but what they're seeing on the farm, what they're seeing in the malt house, what they're able to kind of just pass across the road to us and say, hey, the two row barley crop this year, these varietals are looking this way. We think you should adjust your brewing process a little bit. Um, for our relationship, though, I think we can be just as much of a sounding board for the farm as the farm can be for us um, in respect to the actual grains that we're working with and the varietals and the kilning methods and the malting methods and so on and so forth uh, for the original point that I made. Like, we don't have flagship beers per se. We, we rotate our, our brands quite a lot. Um, we do, we do you know, pale lagers. That's going to land in a, a wide variety of different beers that we're making. Um, so for us, it's nice when Hillary is really excited about a product, about a grain, about a raw grain, about, you know, a new malting technique that they can bring a few bags to us. And we're really small. We're doing like seven or 15 barrel batches. So we can do a seven barrel turn of like Vienna malt was a good example. When the farm started kilning a v or, you know, working through a Vienna malting process, we brought whatever we brought eight or 10 bags in and we had uh, some friends up from Florida and we brewed a Vienna lager and that was to test the malt and to see how it works on our system. And then we can collectively make decisions moving forward on um, what we would like to see differently or what we liked about it. Justin, what are your conversations like with the maltsters you're working with? Sure. So uh, <laughs> there's the non-existent conversations with the big malt company that we use out of Germany. Um, and then there are some very in-depth conversations that we have with uh, some more local malting companies. Um, Schilling, when it comes to local malt, we primarily work with, with Andrea and Christian over at, at Valley Malt. Um, we've been working with them for a while. Um, some of it is pretty uh, routine of uh, like this year, Schilling is switching all of its wheat uh, over to locally malted wheat, locally grown wheat. Um, and that's been a, a big, a big step for us. Um, and some of it's a little more, uh, in depth about looking for a certain product, looking for a certain, um, methodology behind it or a certain growing region. Um, something that Andrea and I have been talking a lot about is just trying finding, finding a barley variety that works really well for our Pilsner production, uh, that's grown as close as we possibly can get to the brewery. Um, so we've been kind of keying in on that, trying to find something through, um, 
sensory analysis that she's been doing and has been done by um, uh, the lab that she works with and then also like um, just the sensory analysis of our team um, and and ultimately the sensory analysis of the end product um, that we're getting towards pretty close uh, pretty soon um, which is really exciting for us um, so yeah it's it can be it can be of two ways I mean there's uh, some products that we use that are a little more customized for what we're trying to do and then there's some products that we use from them that it's you know we're not as focused on exactly which farm it came from or exactly what the conditions were for that uh, malting process. All right. So, Michael, uh, talk to us about the malt that comes into your brewery. Yeah, luckily uh, for me, and back in 2019, I was selected to be on a, uh, a sponsored trip to the Czech Republic um, put on by the Ministry of Agriculture. Um, I don't know how or who nominated me as a, a North American brewer that makes European styles. And uh, anyway, I was very lucky to go on this trip. Uh, it was a very organized and, and choreographed trip where we went around the entire country from breweries to maltsters to hop growers. Got to see this whole entire beautiful country that was designed to make beer somehow by like <laughs> nature. Um, there's land race varieties of hops and land race varieties of, of barley that just happened to be in that region from, for millennia. So, uh, what lucky people and what a wonderful place in the world. Uh, it was there, you know, tasting beer, amazing pale lagers, uh, obviously that you would expect. Um, and like any curious brewer going into, even though it wasn't part of the tour, taking a peek into the, the grain rooms and, and mills and, uh, the favorite beers that I had, were all using this one, uh, particular malt, uh, from Raven malt. Um, and that was not available in the U.S. So I talked to some, uh, when I got back from that trip, talked to some importers and started getting containers imported to North America. Um, this one was at a stint at Oxbow Brewing, nine-year stint. Um, <laughs> selfishly wanted to use this grain, right? Um, it was after starting importing it that uh, really learned more about why and why it tastes the way it does and, and what's going on there and realizing that uh, there's a geographic protection indication, uh, an EU protection to call Czech beer, Czech beer. Um, and part of that is using Hanna variety of barley. If you're not using that variety of barley, you're not making Czech beer. Um, so when we're setting up uh, amongst other things, you have, you have to use, you can't just make a pale lager and throw some saws from, Germany or somewhere else, and then call it a Czech style beer. Um, there's a lot of checkpoints that you have to meet. Um, but barley being the that soul, was the dad joke. That was the dad yeah. joke. Yeah. That was it. Yep. There'll be more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> For those of you keeping score. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, where was I? <laughs> there's not much sleep going on around here. Um, yeah, just uh, starting with the idea. We start up our, our brewery. We want to be authentic to to what we're claiming to brew and to the friends that we've met in that country um, and agreeing and aligning with, with their ideals uh, is using these ingredients, these raw ingredients. Agriculture there is so revolving around beer production. It's, it's amazing. Like, not to talk about hops, but every third grader has to go to hop harvest as part of school, for instance. Um, so it's just this beautiful, if you like beer and you go there, you're just so inspired um, like we were. Um, yeah, so I don't know if that so, answers no, the so, question. So for the beers that you're making then, no. there is no alternative in your mind? No. no. Are you open to making other styles of beer? Like, um, I mean, you're sitting here, you're, you're around folks who are, who, are, who are growing grain. I mean, what are you looking for, if anything, for smaller producers, uh, from smaller producers, that you could potentially incorporate into your beers one day? Or is that just so far off in the horizon that? Yeah, hopefully the brewery goes well and we never have to brew anything besides these two beers. So we set this brewery up so we can deep dive and, and get into knowing these ingredients so intimately that, that we can tell a different season to season. And you know, the more you brew and the more different styles, the less opportunity there is to deep dive into one beer. Uh, and that was so important to us was not to be a brewery that makes good beer. We want people to know a specific beer and and get to get it to be a habit, get it to be intimate, uh, not with our brewery, but with the individual beers. Uh, 
Um, but that said, we we're we're both lo beer lovers. Um, we do still collaborate with other breweries, and I think that's an opportunity for the innovation that that small producers and new producers and new new things happening in the industry. It'd, it'd be silly to lose sight of of what's happening um, and being excited about it. And certainly, you know, my tenure at at Oxbow was very much revolving around using craft malt, raw raw different raw grains. Uh, and just being a brewer is, you know, being a student for life. And if you're not continually learning, um, you know, you're, you're not doing it right. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> Justin, as, as you think about the hops came up. And so for those of you who don't spend too much time around breweries, there are, uh, insufferable beer nerds who will show up. Uh, and ask for specific beers by by specific hops, you know, like oh, does this one have mosaic or where's your Eldorado, um, uh, and, and and things like that. And there's not a lot of conversation that centers around malt from the consumer standpoint. And so, uh, Sean and Justin, I'm I'm curious if you're able to create a new narrative with consumers based on the the specialty malts that you're using, the craft malts that you're using to sort of push that consumer conversation into a direction, you know, beyond whatever the, the hop of the moment is. You want to start? Sure. I'll, I'll start. <laughs> um, I, I think that's one of the more difficult things right now. I think, uh, personally from a consumer standpoint, I think grains, grain varietals are, are, you know, less exciting than a hop varietal because it's not thrown in people's face as much. Um, but just like anything else, it's an agricultural product, right? So like if you go into the, you know, hypey IPA world and you have a beer with, with whatever nectarone in it, nectarone's not the same depending on where you get it from. It's right. still based on the grower and the climate and processing techniques and everything. Um, and I think that's an important educational component that we are, we're trying a little bit to work on. We did a beer last year, um, just called Donko. It was a Donko rye varietal that Hillary's growing. And it was, Amanda might remember the grist better. I think it was, you know, 75 ish percent rye, uh, single, single cultivar rye. Um, the label for that beer was just, you know, uh, ahead of the the blade of grass and showed some grain kernels. And the idea is to try to help kind of teach people a little bit more that, you know, it's not just a rye lager. It's not just an amberish lager. It's a Donko rye lager and specifically what that rye varietal tastes like grown at one specific farm in one specific season. So uh, to answer your question, I think we're, we're very far off from having folks be excited for for grain varietals, but I think it's something fun to work towards. Justin, what about you? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have to uh, kind of start from the beginning because uh, when the New England IPA revolution was happening, it was really teaching all these customers and sometimes having them teach you um, about these different hop varieties and what makes them unique, um, what makes them all taste the same. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Oh, sorry. Shots um, fired. Uh, but oh, man. <laughs> um, you know, there was not, there was nobody cared uh, what the malt bill was that was backing that. Um, so for, you know, being at one of those breweries that was starting up in that, in that time, we had an opportunity to kind of show consumers why this is so important to us. And now, um, you know, 10 years later, it's like breweries have to do the same thing, but they have to do it with malt. And I already think that like, uh, like our keynote speaker was saying earlier, like the, the test case is there, like we've done this before, we've done this with hops. Uh, wine growers have done it with grapes, um, small, uh, food, uh, bread makers have done it. Like there's, there's all sorts of places to learn from and how that's going to be part of the marketing, um, uh, part of the storytelling, uh, staff education, um, is a huge part of it. Um, our, you know, our bartenders and our salespeople, uh, interact with the customer way, way more than I do. So making sure that they have uh, the same information that we do, uh, giving them opportunities to also go to a farm, to also visit it, a malting facility, um, to have education um, through different programs uh, that they can learn about this stuff so that they're equipped to answer questions uh, in the tap room or out in the field. Because I can, I can speak for forever about why lager brewing or why malt choices are important to me and why the... 2% of the grist bill that was comprised of this one thing really drives that beer and makes it unique and makes it different. But if our 
sales rep or our bartenders or our waitresses don't care, then it's like, uh, you know, the, the end consumer is not going to ever get that. So getting that passion across to the end consumer, I know that was a, a part of the last conversation of like, how do we, how do we get the, um, end consumer to care about the grain choice, for example, um, well, we've done that with hops. Um, we yeah. just have to show that same passion um, and really drive home what makes it what makes it cool and what makes it unique. Mike, do you find that you're able to have a conversation with malt about malts to your customers that come through because of the nature of what you're using and because it is such an important part of your story for the beers that you're making that, yeah, I, I almost felt like when you, when you were talking about the model, I almost like set up a little bit straighter because you're, you're talking about it with reverence. You're coming at it from a, from a, 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 a really, you know, altruistic perspective. Um, do you find that you have an easier time talking to folks at the bar about your raw ingredients because of the beers that you're making? Uh, absolutely. But and uh, do they get it? They get it. I think, because it is contagious when you start to talk really excited about something. Uh, and the story behind it of, you know, we didn't just go to the store and get this. We had to travel and then there's a lot of barriers to get it to our door and, and incorporate it in our product. Um, so that story is, is very intoxicating to people. They, they, they latch right on. Uh, of course, I follow it up with like samples like, hey, chew on, chew on this and like really get into to talking about it. That's always been part of my my story about beer. I think obviously hops are showy. They're the, the front men of the band, so right. to speak. But, um, you know, I'm a rhythm section guy and <laughs> want to give the <laughs> drum and bass or, or the, 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 the malt, the credit that it deserves. And, and that's what's defining the beer. So I've always tried to, you know, anytime giving a tour, I think talking about malt is, is, is the story. Um, more than anything, you know, it's, it's, it's what's defining the beer styles that you're brewing and more people should give it the focus. Yeah. Uh, Sean, Justin, in talking about the stories and in talking about you know, the malts, the specialty and craft malts that you're using, um, what have you found is helpful in what's being communicated to you from the farms and what would you like to see more of to help deliver that, that message to the end to the end user, to the final consumer. So I, my, my history of, of talking with, uh, maltsters, uh, because I had very rarely had occasion to talk to farmers until pretty recently. Um, and then like yesterday talked to a seed breeder and I'd never done that before either. So, um, you know, peeling back some of the layers on this, um, has been, has been cool for, for me. Um, but I definitely was one of those people that when, a, malt, a local monster showed up. I was like, "The uh, your stuff's going to be too expensive for us. Uh, it's not going to have the efficiency that we're looking for. Thank you, um, but no thanks." Um, and uh, the persistence of some of those monsters, and then just me growing as a brewer, I feel like I've learned that that was a, a horrible way to look at things. Um, and I now have an appreciation for what they're doing, um, and you know getting at what, uh, we're looking to hear more of, um, I think is a little bit of the, uh, the story, but also a little bit of like what, what works for, uh, for the farmer and what works for the maltster. Because I think a lot of my original, uh, feeling around this was, well, if I tell the maltster and I tell the farmer, uh, this is what I want, then I'm going to get what I want, but that might not be what they're actually good at they might be a better grower of a specific variety of barley or a better grower of wheat or rye. The malting company um, may uh, specialize in a certain thing that is going to therefore be the best representation of what they're offering us. And it's better to focus on that. So uh, I don't, I, I hope that uh, malting companies or, or farmers, when they go to breweries, they don't get people like what I used to be, which was the uh, well, I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm using and I want you to, to make something exactly like that and trying to get beyond that to learning uh, what it is that makes the uh, product that you're offering uh, better, uh, unique, um, something that has a story behind it. Um, it's something that I geeked out about. Uh, you know, Mike was talking about Hannah Malt um, and 
I found out through uh, Andrea at Valley Malt that there's um, a farm in New York that grows uh, a Hannah bridal and Valley Malt malts it. And now we use it. Um, we were brewing with it yesterday. Um, and that kind of like that realization that like kind of turned the full circle for me of, of understanding a little bit better as to um, what uh, like that farmer loves that varietal apparently. And that works really great for him. And it was like, perfect. That's also like a cool piece of a story for us because we make Czech beers as well. So we wanted to have, and we used, we used the Raven malt. It's beautiful. I love it. Thank you for getting it over here. Um, but it was, it was really cool to find that there's somebody else that's got another, like another piece of that, um, and that, and that we could use and feature. Yeah, Sean. Yeah, I think another aspect also, so I'm not just repeating everything that Justin's saying, is uh, <laughs> is quite simply proximity. A man and I can hop in the car and in, you know, less than an hour be in Hillary and Blair's kitchen sharing a couple beers and talking about some more unique heirloom cultivars that we'd like to hopefully see them test plot this upcoming season. And that can happen with any grower and any brewer or any end user. Um, but again, just from a proximity and ease standpoint, we can do that face to face a lot easier than planning a trip, hopping on a plane to the Czech Republic and, you know, figuring out how to leave the brew pub and the baby accounted for at any point. So, um, I, I think that's one of the biggest pluses for us is like, we, we can be at the farm, um, Hillary and the Rabbit Hill team do a great job every year of having all the growers, or I'm sorry, all the brewers or distillers locally that are using their grains and using their products out on the farm during, uh, like right before harvest typically, so that everyone can can see the plants that they'll be brewing with. They can touch them. They can, you know, step on them. They can they can chew on them. Um, and I think for us, that's one of the, the the biggest components to having the farm local to us and working with the local product. This year is the first time we're doing a membership program of sorts at the brewery. We've always kind of found it quite corny and admittedly uh-huh. didn't want to tie ourselves to uh, to something, to promises that we couldn't keep. But instead of like a lot of product or, or beer that someone would be paying for up front, we were more so wanted to make it about the experience and help bring people you know, one step closer, a small group of people, one step closer into what we're so passionate about and what, you know, gets up us out of bed every morning. So uh, it's, it's, it's really the bulk of that membership is two big events, one at Rabbit Hill, so that we can bring folks out there and walk some of our customers through the grain fields that will be, you know, some of next season's saisons and next season's lagers um, and next season's chip malt in the hoppy beer, because we do make that also. Um <laughs> And then secondarily, another partner farm of ours where we can walk them through the flower fields and the fruit fields and such. Um, but I think that's one of the biggest components for us. And I think what we'd like to see a little bit more of, which is is nothing new or nothing secret, I think that's why we're all here and working on this, is just you know continued growth and partnerships of, of helping to educate the consumer and more so than educate the consumer or maybe along the same lines in an ancillary fashion, just get them as excited about you know, such an integral, probably the most integral raw ingredient in, in beer. Mike, knowing that you're committed and I'm going to open this up for questions in just a minute. So, um, just be on the lookout for me coming out after I ask Mike this question. Um, knowing you're committed to the malts that you're using though, what would you find helpful to know from the growers from the specialty providers, you know, out there these days is, is, is there information that you know, you still think that you could find interesting, you know, as a brewer, you know, as a curious person that you'd like to hear more of, even knowing that you're just going to make the beers that you make. Yeah. Totally. Again, we are, we are going to make collaboration brews at other breweries, uh, keeping up on, on trends, uh, and having a connection to agriculture is, is so vital to, me as a person and us as a brewery, regardless whether we're using those local products or not. Um, I think, you know, again, I go up at least once a year up to the county to Mapleton for either planting or harvesting at, at Buck Farm. Um, even knowing that we're not, I'm not going to use their grain, it's still important to get in a combine and see a field of grain. And it makes you, I think, more you know, what's that term when you go into nature because it's good for your soul? Like as a brewer, going into a field of grain is good for your soul as a brewer. Like it, it's going to make you a better brewer, um, you know, and bringing it full circle. 
obviously is is the best thing going to the, and then using that grain processing that grain and using it and i think that's something we'll continue to do you know it won't be in the two products that that we're brewing right now but um again collaboration beers it will be so yeah. Um, I, I hope that this room, I'll leave one caveat. I think there's a little bit, I wish that like, for instance, New England IPA needed to have New England grain in it, for yeah. instance, like as, as a beer person, that would make me happy to see a seal or like the whole brewing community come together and say, Hey, there needs to be whatever it is, you know, 50% or whatever it is, some sort of uh, style definition because I think that's going to help us as a whole. Sorry to go off top. No, 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 no. Why, I mean, it, that's why. Question: I, Anybody have a question out there? All right, I'll start walking back. Um, how would you guys feel about that, though? Should there be designations for New England styles to actually have New England grown malt? I don't know if he can talk about this. That's. Um, <laughs> uh, I I love the idea. Um, I think it I think it would be great. I think though it's probably it's probably missed its time um, when it comes to when it comes to that style, just because it's been, I mean, sure, I guess a, a, that same style brewed somewhere else can make it a hazy um, or whatever you want to call it. But uh, to me, like, yeah, that, that was something that uh, unfortunately breweries at that time missed the boat on. And I, I, I think looking back on it now, like, yeah, wish back then uh, the breweries that were really at the forefront of that um, had, had had done that i mean it would have been great um i think it would have been big help to a lot of people in the room here um starting out i mean a lot of the a lot of the malting companies that uh started about the same time about 10 years ago um and and having some of that support back then would have been would have been helpful i think um now there is like so um the uh northeast grain shed alliance uh has a square foot project um that uh, not to toot our own horn, Schilling joined this year, um, and that does put a designation on. You can put a designation on your on your packaged products or on your menu that says um, how much square foot uh, of local grain went into each can uh, or each pint or each keg, um, and that I think is uh, I think it's I, I hope it's part of that process for educating the consumers that we were talking about earlier that they see that immediately and it's something that they start to recognize uh, on local products and realize that yeah, not every product that's made locally actually has local ingredients. Um, I do think there are some consumers out there that believe it or not, don't realize that. Um, and they don't, and conversely, some don't realize that there are local products that do have local ingredients in them. There's just the assumption that they're all coming from somewhere else. Yeah. Um, Michael, I was curious to know when you were in the Czech Republic and you peeked into those grain rooms and you saw that that common thread through those beers that you were enjoying was that Raven malt. Once you've brought it here, is it doing that same thing for you that was exciting about the beer in the Czech Republic? Is it doing it here in your brewery? Um, having only used it in our brewery, uh, it's hard to have that point of difference, but um, being a brewer for 17 plus years, it does make me excited when that palate comes in and I know that we had to climb this mountain to get it there. It's part of our story. It's part of our identity. Um, for, I'll give a quick caveat. Our first brew day ever, which was the first time me and my wife brewed together. We just put this brewery together, did all the math and calculations. First brew was spot on number wise, which was like crazy to think about. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, we both have a lot of experience, but it's also it comes back to the raw ingredients um, and having some understanding of, of the performance that we'd get out of it. Um, so that, I guess to answer your question is yes, we were both very excited to get that malt um, because it's uh, the flavor is what, what we wanted and the performance is what we wanted. We have a question back here. Yeah, just to nerd out a little bit more on on, on the Hanna Pilsner. Uh, I've never seen a full C of A on that malt. Could you kind of speak to that a little bit? Uh, yes, maybe after this I can. I actually brought uh, COA with me so, uh, as part of a presentation that we avoided doing. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I can go over uh, all that stuff. It's a low. Yeah, we'll go through it. But, yes. And anyone else who wants to take a peek at that uh, after the presentation. Okay, so I'm I'm not okay. Yeah, I just this thing is pretty loud. <clears throat> I'm a small grains breeder. Uh, 
we've been working on trying to, you know, produce new varieties for this part of the country, the Eastern US. Right now, there is not a supply chain that will make it so that you can really do this thing you're talking about, about having, say, New England uh, IPAs, having New England grown grain. I mean, they just, they're, the, the total capacity would, is nothing, right? They tried this in New York. And it was a huge failure because they weren't, New York used to grow barley, but that was like a hundred years ago. And so there weren't any varieties in New York. And now the, the farm bill that they have that allows them to do that, it, I, I think they have to be up to like 90% in the next few years. It, they've changed it a little bit. But right. Yeah. It's, mod, it's been modified, but it's still a big problem. We're not producing enough of it. And like, I mean, I mean, like storage is a huge problem. So how do you all see your part in helping build that supply chain from the perspective of making sure that there is demand and pull, right, from, from the brewing industry to make sure that we, we can get growers even starting to try to grow this stuff. And two, you know, I mean, I, I, I still don't, what, what I don't know is I don't see what's going to happen between the growers and the malt houses. Where is that grain going to sit for the three to six months that it needs to sit before it's ready to malt? And like, what is your perspective on building that side of the chain? So I, sorry to jump in, but I, I think um, from the brewery's perspective, really the only thing that we can help with is is by making commitments um, to supporting. Uh, so uh, the big one uh, in this area, literally this area, is is Allagash's commitment um, to using um, uh, oats in, in uh, Allagash White from Maine Malt House, um, all Maine grown, um, and that they're, I think, I don't know, it was a ridiculous amount of grain. Um, that project that they've been on for a few years uh, involved, like they, they talk about uh, the involvement that they had to have of basically making commitments to help with infrastructure. Um, they had to go on their own learning adventure to understand how this would all be possible because they, when they started out on that endeavor, they didn't even realize if it was even, even possible. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I was at a farm in New Hampshire and uh, the farmer was, I mean, he was almost like literally just looking for somebody to raise their hand and be like, I will commit to buying five pallets of your grain next year um, because he was making investments in his own infrastructure uh, to change his farm or to change part of his farm from, from dairy farming uh, to growing grain for, uh, for brewing and distilling. Um, and that was something that really, that really stood out to me. Like I, I'm not an expert on how to store grain for three to six months. Um, you know, so for me, it's more of like, uh, what are the, what are the things that breweries can do to, uh, make commitments, whether it's promising to use something, uh, making that promise known publicly so that there's some accountability to that. Um, and if there are things that can be done financially to, uh, to, to invest, uh, for breweries to invest, uh, in that in that infrastructure and supply chain that you're discussing. I, I mean, with look, contracts we, was the question. Yeah. I mean, we had them for, for hops for years. Uh, they, they suck. Um, I, as, as a production manager, who's trying to, um, uh, keep track of all of our raw ingredients, order them and stuff like that. I'm trying to move away from our contracts. Uh, they get us a few dollars of savings. Uh, they ensure certain things, but not other things. Um, and they're certainly supposed to, for the farmer, be a protection against bad years. Uh, I got bad news for hop farmers. There's a lot of bad years ahead. Um, so for a brewery, it's really hard to make that commitment. Um, it was uh, certainly pivotal for hop contracting over the last 10 years or so for, for New England IPA brewers to be able to uh, make sure that they had Galaxy, make sure that they had Nelson, um, things like that. So I think it's worth thinking about contracts for grain. Um, but I think I'm not the only production manager in the country that's trying to get away from their hop contracts. I'll jump in and mirror what Justin's saying real quickly about uh, commitments. I think what the Guild is doing with the um, certified craft malt program is a step towards that. Um, we, we jumped in on that with Rabbit Hill. So we're a certified craft malt brewery, which means we think this is incredibly low, by the way. Uh, we, we, uh, we use contractually a minimum of 10% of our entire year's uh, 
grain usage is coming from Rabbit Hill Farms. Um, I think it's a it's a nice entry level point. I think it's a great step. It's great to raise awareness. I think maybe some tiers to that would be helpful. Our first year of brewing, we used forty one percent of our grain came from Rabbit Hill. This year, we're at about fi- or twenty twenty two. We should be about fifty six percent or so. We haven't finalized that yet. Um, but I think the commitments are huge. Personally, for us, we're small, so there's only so much we can do to put a dent in Rabbit Hill specifically's production for the year. Um, all of our saisons, all of our lagers are all New Jersey grown grains. Um, every other beer we do has some component of New Jersey grown grains in them, but that only gets you so far from a farmer and a grower perspective when we're looking at, you know, between a broad spectrum between 500 and a thousand barrels a year, that that's a, that's a little drop in the bucket. Um, another thing we do personally, not just to speak to our brewery, but I think is helpful is like, since we're so committed to local ingredients and local grain, every time we do a collaboration locally, we make sure that we are not doing that beer unless they're purchasing grain from Rabbit Hill. So a lot of that has been in New Jersey because it's easy, um, just, you know, shipping wise and getting grain there, but even slightly over state lines. uh, We have some friends of ours in Philadelphia that we just did a beer with that we split the grist 50-50 with Pennsylvania grown malt and New Jersey grown malt. So that's another thing we're trying to push is when we do a lot of these projects to really make it be a back and forth and not just throw a logo on something from a marketing perspective and help to kind of spread what we're so passionate about with those local ingredients as well. Um, And not to end this on a negative note, but to say exactly what Justin said, I personally have never learned anything about raw grain storage. So outside of a a production brewery type of setting. So those are some of the big picture questions that like, at least personally, I don't want to speak for everybody, but personally, I don't really know how the brewing industry really helps some of those obstacles in growing that supply chain side of things. Yeah. I'll I'll jump on real quick. And that um, I think you hit the nail on the head is everyone in this room and everyone that was in the rooms last week at the brewer summit, I think everyone needs to remember that uh, brewing is an extension of malting and one hand's washing the other. And the more that maltsters understand the brewing process, and especially the more the brewers understand the malting process, you're going to have a lot of bleed over to operations and, and commitments and just more excitement as a holistic what beer is made of. Um, I think this industry, especially as a small, smaller brewers, um, becoming the majority um the opportunity is there and and it's a shame i'll i'll point at myself for years and years and years took it for granted you know you look at open a catalog open some or order some grain oh i'm brewing an english beer I'll order some english grain uh, and just have it, that disconnect is so rampant and we need as an industry it's not maltsters and and separately brewers like we're we're all in this together we need to be leaning on our our brewers guilds our governments like we have a lot of power if we get together and 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 work on things together from a journalistic standpoint i'll point out that covering beer for as long as i have now the more interesting stories are when i hear about the collaborations that are using local malts or that are doing something that is not just oh yeah we're brewing an english beer and we pulled this out of a catalog and you know beer in a box here you go kind of thing so you know as as you all we're going to be talking about media tomorrow in a session but um as you all are working with uh local breweries to create something special uh, to provide grain for something special. Keep your local uh, uh, websites, newspapers, radio stations, et cetera, in, in involved uh, in those conversations and in those announcements because that's another great way of getting it out there. People are going to show up and be interested in hearing about beer, but if you can peel that layer back a little bit more. Um, and I will say selfishly, um, Justin brought up what Allagash is doing uh, on the All About Beer podcast, which uh, M. Souter and Don Tess host. They had Jason Perkins from Allagash on a couple of weeks ago. And uh, he went really deep into their, uh, their, their craft malt program. So um, it's just all about beer on your podcast platform of choice. That's the only self-promotion that I'll do uh, before passing it on to Dan Carey from New Glarus. Uh, real, real quick. Sorry, Dan. Um, I just want to say that that's the one other thing I think breweries can do is that uh, no, no, like, <laughs> no, no offense to anybody in the room, uh, but breweries have a, a pretty big uh, sounding board these days and have a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of followers on social media. Um, there's a lot of great podcasts. There's a lot of all sorts of things that breweries are a part of, whether it's these panels, whatever it may be. Uh, and breweries need to, I think, be uh, the ones that are constantly pushing the message out there so that uh, it's going to eventually turn into more business for everybody else that's in the room here. 
Um, I think that's an obligation that breweries need to start having. And I think we've already talked about like collaborating as, as a big part of it. Um, I'm actually this afternoon going over to Bissell Brothers and we're using a floor malted pills from Main Malt House for, for a brew this afternoon. And, um, you know, when, when they come over to our place, we're going to make sure that we use something local to us too. Um, because I think that when we talked about terroir in the last session, like that's like, that's what we're getting at. We're doing these collabs because we're going to other places. So what makes that, that place what it is? I guess what I, I would like to say to small maltsters and uh, farmers is that uh, this is the first time I've come to this convention and I really feel a sense of uh, optimism. Um, certainly there's more questions than, or more questions than there are answers, but it's a lot like what the craft brewing conference was like 25, 30 years ago. Although certainly your guys' future is gonna be different than ours as brewers, but, uh, and it's gonna be painful. Anybody that's gonna stick around for the next 25 or 30 years, I know that uh, if we talk then, if I'm still around, you're gonna have a lot more battle scars. But um, I can tell you, I'm a, a big fan of the, how Toyota does business. There's a book called The Toyota Way, and I think anybody that is in manufacturing business should read that book. In that book, uh, after, after World War II, of course, Japan was completely devastated, and Mr. Toyota took a trip to Detroit and Detroit at that point was certainly smokestacks and ruled the world, as, as you can imagine. And instead of being demoralized when he left, he was uh, energized because he knew he could do better. Um, and I think the reason is because he saw the cracks, the deficiencies. And a, a comment um, uh, uh, was made by Justin about lack of communication with large maltsters. And certainly, um, large maltsters have supply chains, they have infrastructure, they have 100 plus years of experience, and those are all things that you don't have. And, um, but you have something that they don't have. You, you, have um, you have the ability to communicate directly with your customers and to move quickly. And I think um, when I work with craft maltsters, I can get on the phone with them and we can have conversations and they can, they can make things to fit my needs and I think you just need to figure out, it's guerrilla warfare, and often, as we know, um, lesser, uh, lesser armies defeat strong armies simply because they're more clever. So I think that you need to find out what your strengths are, and please, please don't play, uh, don't pretend that you're a large monster. You have to figure your own way around um, in this complicated world. And as I said, it's not gonna be easy, but those of you that are brave and strong and clever, I think you're gonna do really well, so good luck. Yeah. Any of you guys wanna follow Dan Carey? <laughs> All Thank right, you, thanks Dan. everybody for coming out. Um, My thanks to the Craft Maltsters Guild for arranging this panel and for allowing us to use the audio for the podcast. Are you a brewer using Craft Malt or not? Let me know. You can email me. It's John Hall. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at allaboutbeer.com. Or you can tell me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. That's also how you can get in touch with questions, comments, and guest suggestions. A reminder, go visit allaboutbeer.com. There you can check out the podcast page, the merch page, and you can read great new content as well as the archives going back to 1979. Follow All About Beer on social media at All About Beer. And if you're interested in supporting journalism in the beer space, email us at info at allaboutbeer.com or simply go to patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. Don't forget, All About Beer has a podcast channel now. You can search and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Steal This Beer is still on eight years strong now and has new episodes every Monday. And the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. As for the show, Nate Weber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.